We as a community are terrible at getting to succinct answers about what we do and how we do it. We waste a bunch of time debating those things rather than actually having impact. And I genuinely believe like we will live in a better world if we have designers at the top of organizations and having impact in all the industries we want to see it in. But we're getting in our own way. Welcome to Deep Dives, my name is Rid, and this is where we go deep with the best designers so that you can learn from their journey and apply it to your own career. Today's guest is Mia Bloom, who's a design executive coach and the CEO of Design Department. Mia was an early design leader at IDEO, Square, and Pinterest, so this episode is full of advice for design managers, the hiring process, and also just people who want to improve the design culture at their company. But first, I wanted to learn more about what it was like establishing the early design culture while building the team at Pinterest from five to 25 designers. Building culture at Pinterest was interesting. Like any startup, it's constant chaos and excitement all the time. I think I learned the hard way that culture is not just the outcome, but it's the system that drives that outcome. So. You know, a lot of us, when we try and affect culture, we create some principles, we put up awesome posters, we inspire people with these little catchy statements of who we're going to be. But the reality is the organization has to match that in order to drive the behavior that we want to see, the new mindsets, the new behaviors. And so a really good example of where I failed originally and then tried to pivot <laughs> is um, we made a shift into a new office as a team. And we were very fortunate that we could have a design-centric space for the Pinterest creative team. But as soon as we moved in, I started to hear whispers like, you know, we'll meet you in your office. We'll see you in the design space. And I was like, oh no, we did exactly what I knew we shouldn't do. We just got so excited about having our own space. So to counteract that, I started these things called studio nights. So in our collaborative, cool design space, we invited everyone else from the company to teach each other new things. And that became a shared collaborative space. We did um, whiskey tasting, we did uh, beer key uh, beekeeping, we did all kinds of things to try and bring people together to teach each other in our space. So it became a shared space. What were some of the ways that the different processes and systems that you were putting in place amongst the team evolved as you took that journey from five to 25 people? I think the key in bringing a team together that's rapidly growing in a chaotic environment is to have some sort of practice that holds it together. You know, at a startup, you rarely know what good looks like. You're trying to figure out what good looks like. So at Pinterest, one of the things that we really invested in was our critique practice. So making sure that on a regular basis, we came together as a team, we talked about what good looked like, we evaluated our decisions, we helped each other grow. And I think that was critical to our ability to move through the ambiguity together and still get good things out the door. What are some of the tips that you have for designers who want to effectively give and receive design critiques? I think the big thing about critique is that you know the difference between opinion and critique. <laughs> it's really easy for the opinions and perspectives to sneak in, but a lot of times designers get so many of that that they don't need yours. So I love to use a little bit like a Mad Lib style to get people going to answer the question, if the objective is blank, then this design decision blank, right? It's just a structure to anchor us in the objective of the project and then make sure that we're not just saying 
our feels, but we're actually assessing the decisions. And that's some of the most useful and actionable feedback we can give folks in critique. I love that. I'm going to start using that <laughs> this week. Like I have crit tomorrow and I'm going to Let me know how it goes. It. I will. It's such a practical piece of advice. Yeah, it's great. I read that you were one of the leaders on the commerce initiative at Pinterest, which is a pretty big deal. And I'm imagining like a lot of, of strategy and deliberation went into that. Can you give us a little bit of a glimpse into what that mm -hmm. process looked like, what your role was and some of the outcomes? I mean, early days commerce and building for businesses on Pinterest was complicated because we were primarily a consumer business, right? Like uh, everyone thought about the pinners first, and there are very few people dedicated to thinking about the businesses that are trying to reach those pinners. And so our job was messy at the beginning, defining what the value proposition was, coming together to figure out how we piece together an experience with minimum effort. And it was choppy and messy. And so a lot of our initial work was advocating for change, potentially on the consumer side as well, in order to create better experiences for businesses which meant there was no massive vision, which people love to create, but it doesn't practically work. It was more of a bunch of pitches for small experiments to see if we can create great outcomes. It wasn't defining the future of commerce. It was, let's figure out how to move towards this, this being a great experience for businesses. So it's not as sexy or interesting or fantastic as I think people want the story to be. It was very practical. Can we make this better? with small steps along the way. What were the different leading indicators that you were looking at to make sure that you were actually moving the right needles and were on the right track as a team? Well, at the beginning, it was as simple as do businesses know how to succeed on this platform? So we were looking at things like, can they find the features? Do they know what features are going to support them? Are they creating content that matters? And quite frankly, like most folks and <laughs> most companies, the experience was super fragmented. There was pieces and parts. And so we had to stitch it together before we could even get to deepening engagement and impressions and all the fun metrics that businesses want to track from a social perspective. How big was the team that was working on this? I think the team was maybe like 15 at max when I was there. Yeah. I'm sure it's significantly larger now, but... It was a small, scrappy group of people trying to figure out how to improve what we already had. Amazing. What were some of the main ways that you personally grew as a leader while you were at Pinterest? I think one of the big things that I learned at Pinterest as a creative leader is how to be comfortable with ambiguity. You would think I would have learned that in my previous startup at Square, but it is a lifelong practice to be comfortable with ambiguity and then to create a space where people feel safe with ambiguity. And so I learned a lot about holding that for myself and others. I learned a lot about navigating executive teams. So it was really my first executive role and being on an executive team and understanding what it means to be a business leader first. And that's hard because we all traditionally grow up in our discipline and want to, you know, advocate for our discipline and fight for our discipline. But at the end of the day, I was trying to help solve business problems that were maybe inclusive of design, but not always. And that was a big shift for me in my career, really being able to solve problems first from that perspective. What else? 
I think one of the biggest challenges I had to overcome in startup life as a creative leader is figuring out how to hire people really fast as an introvert. I'm an extreme introvert, despite what I do. People you don't believe me. Very well. I hide it very well. I can turn it on, but then after I talk to people, I go and pass out. You know, <laughs> like, I need a break from humans. But as a leader, my job was to be connected, to talk to a lot of people, to sell the potential of the role, to be excited about the mission. And that's a lot of conversations. And so as an introvert, that was incredibly challenging, figuring out how do I build relationships with people while still maintaining the energy I needed to just succeed in my day-to-day -day management responsibilities. Do you have any advice for <laughs> other introverts that feel similarly? What were some of the things that you did that worked? As an introvert, you know, thinking about the recruiting side of things, it was trying to connect genuinely and at scale. So whenever I could, you know, put a perspective out there or do a talk or something like that, that was a more scalable way of reaching audiences, even though I hate it. I hate being on stage, <laughs> but it, but it was an effective strategy. And then I tried to just build genuine relationships, not always live. So if I could connect with people over email or follow up with them on Twitter, I would use the tools to stay connected, but it's hard because it does require a lot of energy. I think the other part was as an introvert and a leader in a company with a lot of people that were not introverts, I had to figure out how to show up in those meetings and preserve my energy, but still appear to be a leader. So getting comfortable with saying, you know what, I'm not going to make a decision in this meeting. I'm going to listen. I'm going to ask questions, but I'll follow up with you all later on my decision. And that's hard because that's not the norm in tech companies, yeah. but really getting comfortable with saying, I'm going to operate slightly differently because I need to be able to process information. I need to be able to make sure I give you a good decision and not just react in the moment. On that topic, you talk about this idea of unlocking your authentic leadership style. <laughs> Can you explain what that means a little bit? I think I learned the hard way that being an authentic leader is really about being in alignment with my values as much as possible or finding the threshold at which I need to be aligned with my values. And it's not necessarily transparency. The hard thing about being a leader is that you feel like you have to tell everyone everything or that there's a desire for information, but that's not real. You can't. There are certain HR and legal things that you just cannot reveal. So you have to show up authentically despite that. And the way that I tried to do that is just be genuinely curious about any of the situations. So for instance, if there is a big change, I may not be able to reveal all the information in that moment about the change, but I could show up authentically and say, well, I'm genuinely curious what this is going to do for us or how we're going to learn and grow from this experience. And that's hard. That's a practice. And then I think the second thing about being authentic as a leader is just knowing your values and knowing when you're stretching too far. So when I stretched too far in other people's values and what they thought good leadership looked like, it was not sustainable for me. I ran out of energy and I didn't want to lead anymore. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, totally. I think that's a very insightful way of looking at it. And it's also something that not a lot of people talk about. And I think that's one of my favorite elements of who you are and even just like some of the writing that you have online where you are quick to talk about things that <laughs> I just don't see coming up in many conversations. And that's a really powerful thing. I'm glad. I want to create content and conversations that genuinely help folks. And I think there are so many things that we don't talk about in terms of what it means to show up, what it means to succeed. So I want to cut through the BS and get to the real stuff, the real talk. <laughs> Yeah, one of those topics that I've seen you 
touch on here and there is this idea of burnout and mm. what to do when we feel the onset of that or maybe how to avoid it in the first place. And I'm wondering if you have any strategies or advice for people who are either currently dealing with burnout or maybe just want to hedge against just making sure that they don't end up in that place. Yeah. Burnout's rough. It's affecting a lot of leaders and teams right now. And I think the key thing is that the pressure is on the individual to be resilient in systems that are not resilient. What that means is that we as individuals in our role have to figure out how to build a sustainable practice despite it all, right? Like the way meetings work, the way teams work, generally they are not designed to optimize for resilience as a team. All the onus is on the individual. My goal is to help individuals figure out what their practice is. How do they maintain boundaries around their time management? How do they make sure they have enough time to think? How do they think about their energy that they're exerting and how do they balance that through their work? How do they talk about priorities and negotiate you know, a certain amount of work moving forward? It's all tools that help them balance so that they can sustain. Because if you sprint and crash, sprint and crash, you're still gonna end up in burnout anyways. So the goal is to build a much more sustainable practice over time. One of the elements of the within mission is you talk about this idea of challenging the status quo in design. And I'm wondering what are some of the ways that you see yourself doing that right now? When I decided to start design department and within, I wanted to start them to create a conversation or an environment for learning that allowed people to talk about the truth of design and to help design have the impact we all believe it can have. And there's a lot of crap out there about what good design is. And we as a community are terrible at getting to succinct answers about what we do and how we do it. We waste a bunch of time debating those things rather than actually having impact. And I genuinely believe like we will live in a better world if we have designers at the top of organizations and having impact in all the industries we want to see it in, but we're getting in our own way. And so what I'm doing and what I'm encouraging my team to do is to talk about those things, to challenge the status quo, to challenge what good looks like as designers so that we can get to better outcomes together. Because if we don't, Design is just going to stay in a place that it currently is. And that would be pretty darn sad, I think, for most of us. We don't want to be just makers. I think we want to genuinely have impact. But if we keep doing the things we're doing now, we're not going to get there. So what I don't know if that answers things? your question. <laughs> it does. I'd like to keep going, though. What are okay. some of the things that you think that we're doing now or some of the misconceptions that we have as designers that are holding us back? I think one of the big things that holds designers back right now is our identity and association with craft. Now, don't get me wrong. I love craft. I fell in love with design through bookmaking. So it is core to my heart as well. But if we want to have impact, we have to be a part of the business ecosystem. And I think a lot of times creatives just don't want to engage in it. And I get it. It's not always fun. It's different language. There's spreadsheets, like all kinds of things that aren't part of our craft and our core identity. But if we don't engage in that effectively, we're not going to have the impact we want and we're not going to be able to do the work we want to do. So that's a huge one that we're focused on right now is trying to help designers figure out how to have impact on the business without losing their creative identity and their soul, you know, and that's some hard talk to get people to realize you can't just hang out and make cool things like that's not enough. We can do more than that. So let's figure out how to do that together. 
What is some of the common advice that you give designers? Because I think a lot of us are coming from either more of an art background or more of a technical background, and maybe we don't have a lot of exposure to the business side of things. How do you help people take those steps towards real impact? That's a great question. I think the first step designers can take in having more impact on the business is just understanding the business ecosystem. I think most folks understand their product or the service that they're building, but do they really understand the system that makes that thing run? What are all the different pieces and parts? If there's partners, if there's multiple users, how do we engage and what's the value exchange? Because you can't design the business if you don't know the system that drives the business. So that's a good first place. Ask lots of questions and visualize the system. What are some of the other ways that designers can grow the amount of influence that they have on yeah. their team and on product strategy and the roadmap and things like that? One way designers can grow to influence their team and have more impact is one that I think they really don't like, but I think it's really important. <laughs> and that is to stop talking about quality. Because quality means everything and nothing all at the same time. I can get 30 designers in a room and ask them what quality is, and I'm going to get 30 different answers. So if we don't know what quality is, how do we expect our cross-functional partners to know what quality is? Instead, we encourage designers to translate the value of their work through investments. So instead of saying, let's improve the quality of the onboarding experience, say, let's invest in clarifying the value proposition to drive more conversions. We're going to do the same work, but the way we talk about the value is radically different. And then we're much more likely to do that work rather than just trying to convince people of quality. And they're like, that's not important, Mia. <laughs> so we have to change the way we talk about the value of our work. Yeah. Latching on to invest as a keyword makes yes. a ton of sense. It's so practical and it really does reframe how we are making a case for what to spend our time on. I love that. Yeah, and it helps talk about short-term, long-term, all the things that naturally come with that metaphor. What advice would you give to a designer who feels trapped further down the pipeline of actually making these investment decisions where they feel mm -hmm. like they are really just being given a fleshed out set of, of problem definitions and they're more in this execution step and mm -hmm. they're trying to work their way further upstream to actually be a part of these discussions and where these investments actually take place. If you want to move further up in the value chain and the value process, you have to illustrate that you can. So for most creatives, that starts with what we were just talking about in terms of communicating the value of your work through investments. So while you may be receiving a lot of requests, you can start to inquire, propose, and talk about ideas at the investment that the business cares about. So be able to translate those ideas into those languages, <laughs> into the business language, so that people understand that you can engage at that level. Illustrate that you can. That's where it starts. And then you're more likely to get invited to those meetings and those conversations because they understand that you speak the same language. If you keep talking about quality, you're not going to move up that value chain. One of the ways that I think we move up that value chain and really speak the language of the, the business owners is by talking in terms of numbers and quantifying the potential for impact. I'm wondering, how did you grow as a data-driven designer, especially like earlier in your career and making sure that you're not like reliant on other people to surface the metrics that matter? What advice do you have for people that want to become more data-driven and grow that muscle as a designer? 
just to be clear, I don't consider myself a data-driven designer. <laughs> like that's not part of my identity. But as a leader, I knew it was important to understand the business problem. So yes, we're good at understanding consumer needs and people's needs. But if you don't understand the business problem, then you don't understand the system you're designing within. So I got better at that by asking really good questions and becoming good friends with my PMs, frankly. <laughs> you know, that gave me the context, the conversations, the support system that allowed me to ask the right questions at the right time to understand what's important to the business right now and why. And so as I learned that through partnership with my PMs and other folks, that gave me more confidence to frame my ideas through that lens and to test it with them. Hey, what if we do this and how would that impact the business? That practice is what set me up to be able to talk about the business at a higher level. Again, data helps, that's one way, but a lot of business decisions are not made on data <laughs> as much as we would like to think that they were. But it's about understanding the system, the market, the value propositions, the positioning, all of those things to explain why we should do that as a business now and why us at all. Can you give more strategies or examples for what it looks like for designers to invest in relationships with different PMs at the company? Yeah, I know. It's such a controversial thing. Designers and PMs getting along. Heaven forbid. Yeah, I know. Um, let's see. I think designers could have better relationships with PMs and that would actually help them grow as business leaders because PMs, most of them at least, already understand what the business is trying to achieve. And their goal is to try and bring a team together and move it forward. So I think the key is sitting down with those PMs and understanding, hey, we're in a partnership together. I'm going to help you and you're going to help me. And you can ask explicitly, can you help me learn the business acumen and talk about what that might mean? Maybe you sit in and listen in on certain conversations. You walk through documents with them. They hold time for you to ask questions, but it's really about holding space to learn from them. Most of the PMs I've worked with were very willing to share that knowledge because ultimately that was going to serve them too to have a designer on their team that could actually speak business objectives. What are some other techniques? One other thing I saw on my team is some of my design leads would actually ask their PMs to co-present. And that meant that a lot of conversations had to take place before to make sure that they were aligned on the why and the how and the language was aligned with the business. So that's a great way to practice and elevate uh, design inside of the company. I love that. I'd like to transition a little bit and sure. talk about different hiring strategies because obviously <laughs> you looked at a lot of portfolios and candidates while you were growing the team at Pinterest rather quickly. And so I'm wondering what are some of the elements that really make a portfolio stand out for you? The most important thing in a portfolio to me, regardless of role is do they understand the why do they understand the importance of that project from the business perspective and the people that they're designing for perspective. If they couldn't communicate that in the portfolio, most likely I wasn't going to get in person either because they weren't prioritizing it. So if their case study wasn't robust enough to explain to me the problem that they were solving, most likely they weren't going to be satisfied in their role. So I always look for, do they understand the why? Can we double click on that a little bit? Yeah. Because yeah. I think, 
conceptually, a lot of designers understand that, and yet they still have difficult time making the jump to translating that and figuring out how much do I go into it? Where does it fit into the narrative of this project? Do you have any advice on even just formatting a project and how to tell that story effectively? A great design portfolio is the unfolding of a story about how a problem was solved. I want to know what was the problem? Why did that matter to the business? Why did that matter to the people that you were designing for? What were some of the challenges and risks along the way? And of course, I want to see some of your process work because I want to see the craft too. But honestly, your pretty slides are not as important as the story of how did you get to the end and what happened at the end? I didn't even care if you succeeded, but I want to know that you failed and what you learned from it because that's really important. How are you gonna solve critical problems and what's the process you took to navigate that problem solving? On the flip side, what are some of the common pitfalls that you see designers falling into? Maybe beyond this lack of a why, what are the other mistakes that designers are making either in the portfolio process or in the interview process? I think the biggest pitfall I see designers make in the interview process is that they don't ask enough questions. They don't get curious enough. And I get it, it's hard. You're bombarded with questions, you're nervous, there's lots of things going on, but this is your opportunity to get to know that team as well. What matters to them? What are they struggling with? What are the problems they need to solve? What are the problems they want you to solve? And getting really clear on, are these problems that I can actually help them navigate? I think it's a matching process, but right now it often feels like we're just performing, but this is your opportunity too. Speaking of questions, I know a big part of evaluating a role is really trying to get a sense for who your direct report is and what that manager designer mm -hmm. relationship is. And so I'm wondering if you have any questions or strategies that people can use to make sure that the person that they'd be reporting to is a good fit. I would recommend all designers ask for a specific interview with their manager where they ask the majority of the questions. And you can frame it as, I want to get to know you and your management philosophy and make sure that I can support you and the team in the best way possible. So I would want to ask them things like, well, tell me about your management philosophy. And if they don't have one, then that tells you a little bit <laughs> about where they are in the maturity of their leadership. I would ask them questions about the hard stuff in particular. How do they navigate change? What's an example of that? You know, what's a recent failure that they're willing to share and what have they learned from that? You know, what's their philosophy on feedback and communication? What do they need to succeed from you? Understand what that relationship's going to be because there's lots of research that tells us like people leave because of their manager. So if you don't know your manager well before you accept the job, there's a lot of increased risk in that. So ask a lot of questions if you can. On the recruiting side, you're obviously able to attract a lot of really talented designers at Pinterest and Square. And I'm wondering what strategies do you have to make the place that you're working seem really attractive for someone that maybe is more senior and has a lot of options on the table? I think the key to hiring senior leaders or senior designers is to help them understand the problem they're gonna solve. Get them excited about the complexity in the mission and know that they have a lot of great work ahead of them. <laughs> um, and so part of that means that you as the leader, as the hiring manager, you have to be excited about that. You genuinely need to know what drives you, what excites you and the team and why the space that they're going to work on is really valuable because you're pitching them. 
And so you need to be able to bring that positive energy to it and help them see the potential. The other thing that's really important in hiring senior leaders or senior designers is that they understand the potential for growth. And this, I think, is one of the harder things for some companies because they cap out at a certain level for senior ICs. But if they understand the potential for growth, then they can see themselves solving those problems with the team for a longer period of time. And that's attractive. They've already been through a lot of jobs in their career. And so they're likely looking for something that they can really like settle into for a little while. How do you present that growth path specifically for someone who is only interested in being in an IC? Well, at best, your company has a career path for the IC path that's very long, but I know not all companies do. I think it's really about being able to share with them and illustrate to them what solving looks like or leading from the craft perspective over a long period of time. And I think in a growth company, it's easy because a company is gonna keep growing. There's gonna be endless possibilities for them to solve great problems with craft with lots of great people. If you're not in a growth company, you might need to spend the time upfront to chart that out. What does that possibility look like? Because if this business is more stable, you'll need to define that upfront, what those possibilities are, because there is a cap. There's not going to be an IC for most companies at the executive level, and that's okay. But just know what that path can be before they ask. I'd love to back up a little bit yeah. now and talk about Square and some of the journey <laughs> that you had there. Can you give us a little bit of an overview about your time there, uh, the different things that you were working on, and maybe even how the, the culture and environment differed from what you built at Pinterest? Well, like Pinterest, I joined Square pretty early, less than 100 employees, and I love that time of a startup. It's exciting. People are energized. It's like chaos all the time. <laughs> and I think Square, unlike a lot of other startups, took itself very seriously. The craft was very serious, whether that was design or engineering, what we were doing was serious because it was related to money. And you could see that in the culture. Everyone cared deeply about what they were building and you could experience it in every way we showed up. So there are a lot of moments where like there was a lot of passion in what we were building. And that showed up in our conversations, how we critiqued work. I was very proud that at Square, critique was like, it was uh, kind of like a sacred path <laughs> for the creative team. We practiced it really well. We did it for every single project, every single team. We had a dedicated critique space, so you know we took it seriously. And I think that showed up in the work. Like we invested in making sure that we were making the best possible craft decisions and business decisions at the same time. And we were able to put great stuff out. I mean, some of the best work that my teams put out were at Square. So I'm really proud of that time. Do you have any specific work that really stands out that you're particularly proud of? I spent most of my time at Square working on Register, which is the iPad product at the time. And I think the biggest challenge we had with Square Register is that we had to get small businesses to switch from these antiquated devices to ours. And they didn't know who we were and they had to train their staff on it. And that's a big task, right? To really transition. And so design ultimately helped create an experience that was so simple so simple and so intuitive that they were able to do that. So I think that's a pretty big feat. Just to be clear, we didn't have support for small businesses at that time. They couldn't call someone and be like, hey, can you set up my register? That didn't exist. So the design had to do that on its own. And I think we did a pretty good job. 
did you nail it right off the bat or was there a little bit of a process? No. How did, how did you no. iter- iterate your way to a, a point where it really was effective and simple? No one nails it on the first try. And if anyone tells you they're lying because they they're prototyped lying. it or something. At the time, this gosh, I feel really old. At the time, right, we had uh, iOS releases. So that gave us time to like prototype and iterate things. And there was lots of prototyping and iterating at Square, which I loved and all resolutions. And so there were lots of things, like I know a couple of the designers had an iPad on their fridge for a while where they were testing out. And so we dogfooded our work, we prototyped it, we challenged it. And I would say the other thing that was really important is design and engineering worked really close together. I would say some of my closest relationships with engineers were from the engineers I'd work with at Square. And so that meant that we solved problems earlier on. It wasn't like we handed off stuff to engineering and then suddenly we realized there was a problem. We realized it much sooner in the process. And I think that helped us iterate to better launches. Obviously sharing early and often and having those collaboration touch points happen at the beginning makes a lot of sense. What are some of the other ways that you think that you were able to establish this culture of effective collaboration between design and engineering and what did that actually look like? Well, at Square, I think design was obviously important to lots of people because the experience was important, but I don't think design held it sacred. It wasn't like only we can design. There were some engineers that did great design work. And I think the fact that we embraced that and encouraged that as a team meant that we had engineers bring us stuff that was like fully polished and we're like, hey, what do you think? And so it was more of a true collaboration um, rather than some sort of weird handoff or two different disciplines with different responsibilities. It did feel like everyone was responsible for the user experience, not just the design team. And that stood out. I don't see that across a lot of other teams. When you're coaching these different teams, what are some of the common shortcomings or ways that you feel like the collaboration between design and engineering is is falling short right now? I think one of the biggest challenges with design and engineering collaboration is that we're often just measured in different ways. And so we're incentivized to behave differently. But I think if we can come together and say like, this is what we're measured on together and be really clear about that, I think that would change how we work together and collaborate. The other thing that I see is that teams are just over-resourced or understaffed rather. And so that means everyone's working so hard that they don't have the time to collaborate when it matters. They're working on the next thing. And so they're kind of, we're kind of waterfalling it, even though when no one will admit it, but like most teams, even if they think they're not waterfall teams, they are operating in that way. And so engineers working on something that we already designed and we're working on the next thing and there's no opportunity to collaborate. So we've got to get better at really thinking about how do we work as a team and sprint together or whatever metaphor you want to use so that we create the opportunity and space for that good like engineer stuff to pop up and inspire the design and back and forth. I feel that at startups totally where it feels like either one of two things happens. One, we are shaping these ideas to try to even figure out what investments we want to make. And I do a bunch of work up front. But then by the time engineering is ready and we've made the decision to make that bet, I'm now on to the next project and the next project. And it it feels like waterfall. And it's like, wait, how did we get here? Or we're running in tandem exactly. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that makes people a little bit uncomfortable. I I actually think it works well. But um, tandem is scary for people. 
But at its best, that's where great things happen. And so if you hold the space for that to exist, you allow for it to happen. If you don't, then, well, you're going to get exactly what we know you get from Waterfall, which is things will be designed, problems will arrive, (laughs) you know, it won't release the way that we expected it to, but it can be better. It certainly can. (laughs) I'd love to transition to a a few quick hitting pieces of advice. The first is, what advice do you have for... ICs who are interested in making the jump to management? I think for ICs who are curious about management or want to make that leap, I think the first thing you can do is look for opportunities in your current role to lead. So maybe talk with your manager, other people around you and say like, what are the opportunities for me to illustrate? I have the capacity to do this new role because it is management is a new role. You're going to be acting in new ways and and leveraging new skills. So how can you do that? Like mentoring people on the team, leading projects, maybe even supporting people in growth, finding ways for you to show up in your current role. And there are ways, there definitely are, because there's a lot of overlap between IC and management if we really allow ourselves to believe that. And then maybe find experiments. Can you manage an intern for the summer? Can you take on one report as an experiment? You know, like look for ways to illustrate and practice before you commit and say, okay, I'm going full on manager. And that will give you the chance to understand what you like about management, what you don't, identify the skills that you need to develop and build trust and stories that help you in those performance conversations where you do finally say, okay, I want to make the leap and advocate for yourself. For someone that's on the fence, what are some of the reasons why maybe they actually would not want to be a manager and make the jump? The thing to remember about IC versus management is that leadership is required for success in both paths. So there's a lot of overlap in how you influence people, how you collaborate, how you talk about the work. But the main difference is is where you spend the majority of your day and impact. Is that with helping other people or is that leading projects? So that's the thing that you have to reckon with (laughs) is I'm going to lead either way, but what do I want to lead through? Do I want to lead through people or do I want to lead through craft and problems and business outcomes? And so once you start to unpack that, I think it becomes pretty clear for people. The other thing I would say is it's not an either or like there are many people in design that have bounced back and forth and found that to be really valuable in their careers. So If you try management for a couple years and realize you want to go back to the IC path, you can. No one's saying you can't. There are some complications, but for the most part, you can move back and forth. And so don't feel like this is an end-all, be-all decision. Like it is a decision for a while, and then you can iterate from there. I've heard people talk about losing this element of creative identity (laughs) and expression when they make the jump. Yeah. And I know you don't feel that way. So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about your perspective. I do, actually. When... When I made the shift in management, I also felt that like loss of creativity. I didn't feel creative anymore. I was in meetings all day and documents and email. And I got at the end of the day and I was like, what did I do? You know, like I didn't feel creative. I didn't feel like I was having impact. The thing that transformed it for me is when I realized that actually my new role was a design role, but what I was designing was different. I wasn't designing the product anymore. I was designing the organization. I was designing the business. And those were bigger, meatier, harder problems. And I love hard problems. So when I realized, oh, I can be creative in a new way, 
I was able to say like, okay, management is creative and it is a creative practice. And that was transformative for me, which is why we teach our courses through that lens. Like we teach culture through the lens of systems design. We teach change management through the lens of experience design, because I want designers to know like this is a creative role to lead a team. And you already have a lot of the great skills that you can apply to these hard management problems. You just have to look at it slightly differently. Applying it a little bit to my own situation selfishly. <laughs> I wouldn't be going through all this work if I, if I wasn't trying to learn for myself. Of course. Um, at Maven, we'll have two to four designers at any given point. And I'm wondering, what are some of the processes and org design strategies that smaller teams can put in place? Well, the beauty of a small team is that it's easier to make decisions together and commit and, and hold a culture. So as long as you say, hey, this is how we want to show up together around how we do work and how we talk about the work, you can define that as values or commitments or, you know, it really doesn't matter. As long as you just say, like, this is how we're going to work together and that you hold space to practice it, to give each other feedback on it, then that culture will form. The hard part is how you scale that because each time you introduce a new person or new entities into that culture, it can shift and adapt. So you have to continue to nurture it kind of like gardening rather than architecture. You have to nurture that over time and small is beautiful because you can, you can do really great and wonderful things that don't scale as a team. You know, crit feels really intimate and lovely, but at scale, you have a lot of people staring at you while you're talking. So it <laughs> inherently feels different. So you get to build your baseline, your foundation at that, at that size. So I would just define it as a team and hold team retros. Like how are we doing as a team, not just on the work, but as a group of people trying to build a healthy space to do creative work, how are we doing on that? And reflect, and it's applying all the same principles. You know, you build a product, you build a system, build the team the same way, experiment, start small, iterate, get feedback. You know, it's the same stuff. It just feels different because it's humans instead of pixels. I know you've touched on some of this before, but I'm wondering if you can kind of tie a bow on it for us. Okay. What are the characteristics of a great design manager in your opinion? A great design manager understands what they're designing. They're not designing the product or the system anymore. They're designing the team, the organization, and the business. And when they do that, they hold space for their team to be the creative folks who make wonderful things. But then they are there to design the ecosystem that they're designing within. So they're designing a great environment for their team to thrive. They're making sure they have the processes they um, need to do great work, but the environment and the system that they design within is being considered, particularly in a startup. If someone's not considering it, it won't exist. <laughs> so great design managers design the environment in which their team creates. And when we do that well, really great things can happen. But a design manager has to be okay with letting go of being a maker at that level and accept their responsibility to make at the business level to make at the organizational level. And if you can do that, great things will happen, but you have to let go of your identity to get there or maybe shift your identity. <laughs> yeah. A couple questions that I've been asking everyone, what advice do you have for designers who maybe are feeling a little bit overwhelmed by all of the technological advancement that's happening and AI every time you open up Twitter mm -hmm. and it's a little bit intimidating. And so I'm like, what are you yeah. thinking about? Where do you think design is heading and how can people prepare? 
I mean, it's hard to know exactly what AI is going to mean for us, but at least right now, it's clear that it's going to change some of the production and making of our roles. So I think what we can do to prepare ourselves for the future and make sure that we stay relevant and are set up for success as a discipline is that we move up that value chain, that we're really making sure that we're helping our organizations understand that we solve important and big, tough problems, because AI is not going to do that anytime soon, or at least well, in my opinion. So if AI is going to take over the structures and the making, like, why are you still talking about design systems as being your value? Like it's going to eat your design system. I'm sorry. And it's going to eat all the production work, which is great because then we get to focus on the important stuff, but your team needs to be ready for that. They need to start building the skills and acumen to solve complex problems with others, to influence the organization, to think about business, because I still think there's a big important role for us, but we have to move with the trends. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I've been trying to think about it myself too. And a couple of things that come to mind are one, I do think that there's going to be a higher value placed on taste and the ability oh, sure. to work backwards from strategic inputs, like being able to move up that value chain is going to be essential 100%. And then the other thing too, is just like design as more of a generalist role is very mm -hmm. interesting to me too. It's not going to be enough to just be like this hyper specialist craft enthusiast potentially. And <laughs> we're going to have to be able to maybe wear some of the hats that some of the PMs would be wearing, or uh, maybe those two roles become a little bit more muddied even. I'm generally an optimist. I think that it's going to yeah. be really great for a lot of people. Um, it can be a little bit scary at times too. I get that it's scary. And so I think the thing, if, if you are scared about this future that's coming, to really ask yourself, well, how do I want to show up in the future? What are the possibilities for me? And chart a couple paths that you can experiment with now to understand, okay, do I want to be that tastemaker or do I want to be that like strategic problem solver and really start to experiment with that. So you have options as the technology unfolds. We can predict all we want, but we'll see what actually happens and what sticks. That's what matters. So give yourself options for what your future design role can be. I love that. Last question is, mm -hmm. What is something that you believe about design that you think many other designers might disagree with? <laughs> All of them? No. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think the most controversial thing that I believe about design right now is that design serves the business. Like design doesn't exist without a business. And if we understand that we can be great business leaders, but you don't just get the seat because we do great craft. You get the seat because you earn it by being a great business leader. And that's a big shift for folks. And it puts craft as secondary to a business. But if you make the business successful, we get to go make great things for people. We get to make their lives better. The business has to exist for that to exist. So it's a mindset shift, but if we can make it, we'll do better things, greater things. Before I let you go, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of share a little bit more about design department and the different courses you're working on. So can you maybe give us a sense of like who they're for and what they can expect to get out of them? Yeah. Design department is everything <laughs> I wished I'd had on my leadership journey. We provide one-on-one -on -one coaching, we do team coaching, and we do a lot of training. So we have public workshops as well as custom learning and development programs for teams. 
And the key is to help designers lead, whether you're on the IC path or management path, through the things you already know. So take those creative superpowers and design skills and turn those into the tools that allow you to scale and design at the business level. Well, that was amazing. Mia, I feel like I personally have learned so much. Uh, you are a wealth oh, you're too of kind. just like super practical knowledge. So thank you for taking the time to share. I know a lot of people are going to get a lot of benefit out of this. Of course. Thanks for having me. My goal is to help folks. So I'm glad it helped. <laughs> That's my goal. And th again, thanks for having me. And I look forward to the courses with the crew.